Okay, hello everybody. Today is Monday. Another Zodiac Monday. Welcome to the show. This episode is going to have a lot of info in it that has never been discussed before on this channel. And it's also going to be one that is going to be shared in an all-over-the-map method, so to speak. But thank you guys for tuning in to uh, Zodiac Mondays. And to the regular listeners, you guys are absolutely awesome. And to anybody who's new to the channel, you can like and subscribe, download the audio version of this program as a podcast at Launchpad 1 for free. And there is always Amazon.com, where you can look at the book Killer on a White Horse by me, Ned Dahan. It's a novel, murder mystery inspired by the Zodiac Manson connection. And of course, there is the Teespring page. Feel free to have a look at some of the merchandise. And remember, being weird is not a crime. Yes, indeed, that book that I wrote, Killer on a White Horse, was inspired by the Zodiac Manson connection, completely fictional. It's set in the state of Maryland, not California. It's set in the contemporary times, not in the 1960s. But the true Zodiac Manson connection was authored by an individual named Howard Davis. And this is just an introduction that I would like to give to... um. The interview that I did with him on the Zodiac Killer Channel's Interviews with the Experts series. I'm also the host of that program, and I interviewed Howard Davis, author of the Zodiac Manson Connection. But I have to say that I didn't come away from the interview with any larger piece of understanding. In fact, it was quite to the contrary. Now, if you do listen to that interview, maybe you'll find out some reasons why. But there was a very particular point when Howard Davis said that Arthur Lee Allen is a suit-and-tie suspect in the Zodiac Killer mystery, and people accept a lot of the evidence in favor of Arthur Lee Allen, when actually some of those same claims could hold up to his suspect, Bruce Davis, who was Charles Manson's right-hand man, the Zodiac-Manson connection. And furthermore, Howard Davis doesn't only believe that Bruce Davis was the Zodiac killer, that Manson's number two is the Zodiac. He believes that Charles Manson orchestrated the Zodiac crimes, because Charles Manson was very active in 1969. The Tate-LaBianca murders happened that year, as well as Manson's activities before and after that, and the crimes that Bruce Davis gets implicated in, the murders of Gary Hinman and Shorty Shea, happening both before and uh, after the Tate-LaBianca murders. The whole point is that Howard Davis said that people accept that Arthur Lee Allen may have altered his appearance and used disguises in certain ways, and Robert Graysmith wrote in his book Zodiac, as well as Zodiac Unmasked, very, very clearly that he believed that the Zodiac was wearing wigs at certain points, that the Zodiac was cutting off the soles of different shoes and gluing them onto other shoes, and that um, disguises the uh, all kinds of a aspects of the case. The Zodiac was wearing all types of disguises. My, well, I guess I have one more point to say. Howard Davis said that People seem to accept that type of evidence in favor of Arthur Lee Allen, but when he says that Bruce Davis could have been using different shoes to alter his height, Bruce Davis could have been wearing wigs at a certain point to change his hairstyle, particularly because Bruce Davis had long hair. He was arrested on October 12th of 1969 during a raid at the Barker Ranch, and that he could 
but he had long hair. How would you how would you fit that with some of these Zodiac killer descriptions? He's like, well, he slicked back his hair, and then he used a particular type of wig on it to make it look like a crew cut. People accept that Arthur Lee Allen may have been wearing a wig. Why don't they accept it of Bruce Davis? Well, one person who has never tolerated any of that is me. Ned from Black Box Online Radio, I have never once accepted that case for Arthur Lee Allen because if we don't truly know who the Zodiac Killer is, then all I'm hearing is Arthur Lee Allen did not match the witness descriptions. He seems to be someone who has a much rounder moon face than the person seen after the Stein shooting. And also, Arthur Lee Allen was balding at the time. That's why Graysmith had to make up this explanation. Well, he he could have been wearing a wig. And there were Wingwalker boot prints found at the Lake Berryessa incident on September 27th of 1969. Arthur Lee Allen was reported to have only worn tennis shoes and sneakers. He had gout in his feet. He also didn't make... He wouldn't have made, like, a long walk, like 500 meters, so to speak. It, it's, it seems like it is not the strongest pieces of evidence against him, but evidence all the same. So, by that same token, I've also... I would also completely reject those claims in favor of Bruce Davis. I found a photo of Bruce Davis where his height was 5 feet 6 inches tall because he's getting the photo like a mugshot. You can see the height scale in the back. However, even if even if when he was younger, he may have been an inch taller, 5 foot 7, I think that's too short to be the Zodiac Killer. I mostly only look at suspects who are 5 foot 8 to 6 feet tall, and... I do mean that if someone has a suspect who's six foot one or six foot two, like Ross Sullivan, I also think that that is too tall to be the Zodiac. How on earth would you have a six foot two person who is mistaken for being five foot eight? And you might be thinking, all right, well, you said Bruce Davis was five six or five seven. I mean, most likely he was five foot seven in nineteen sixty nine. As somebody gets older, the photo I found of him is in his uh, senior years, and he has gray hair. As someone gets older, of course, there's going to be curvature of the spine. They might lose an inch of height. But um, how does how would you get a five foot seven person to be mistaken for six feet tall at Lake Berryessa? Cecilia Shepard estimated that the zodiac's height was an inch or two above the height of a five foot ten person, meaning that if he's two inches taller than five foot ten, six feet tall. How would you put that all together? I personally think that the way you can reconcile all of this info is look for a suspect that is five foot ten or five feet ten and a half inches tall. This is consistent with the officer Falk sighting of the Zodiac after the Stein shooting. Multiple people saw the Zodiac killer after he murdered Paul Stein on October eleventh of nineteen sixty nine, and then there's a. a I'm trying to remember, I believe it's a five foot eight sighting from the Robbins kids who were watching the Zodiac exit Paul Stein's taxi. And even though um, I think Michael Morford doesn't think that Officer Falk has the strongest credibility, and Morph can correct me if he's wrong, but I, I've just kind of always accepted the Falk sighting of the Zodiac, and that is listed as five foot ten. So do you see how all this is coming together? Someone's sometimes five eight, sometimes five ten, sometimes six feet tall, but what do you do? I think we're looking for a suspect who's 5'10", 5'10 and a half thereabouts. And I think Bruce Davis is absolutely out of that range. I mean, if he's 5'6 or 5'7, no, almost certainly not. And the reason why I didn't accept this about Arthur Lee Allen or Bruce Davis is 
you have to make assumptions. You have to literally and intentionally fudge the facts to make the suspect fit. That, oh, okay, maybe he was uh, wearing some type of uh, lift on his shoe to make himself taller. Well, how do you know that if it's an unsolved case? That is intentionally altering the information to make your theory work. And also, like, if, you're, if your suspect has the, the wrong type of hair, if his hair is too long, or if he's balding like Arthur Lee Allen, maybe he was wearing a wig. You have to intentionally alter the known facts to make your suspect fit. And back when I did the suspect ratings, when I talked about how you could rank a suspect on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the highest, meaning most likely this person is the Zodiac Killer, I gave Bruce Davis a 0.5. And then, after interviewing Howard Davis on the Zodiac Killer Channel's Interviews with the Experts series, I have, I have to drop that rating to 0 0.4 out of 10. Not even a single percentage point for Bruce Davis or any of this Zodiac Manson connection, just being honest. So, I think that... And excuse me for the very long introduction into today's episode. I just think that I should come away from those interviews thinking that this person's theory has more credibility, not less. And I'll just leave it at that. But did you guys know that Bruce is a very common name in the English language? Bruce Davis, of course, the Zodiac Killer suspect. There's some other people. Bruce Wayne, Batman, right? Also Bruce Lee. Well, some other guy named Bruce, another individual named Bruce, wrote into the channel, and he has provided me with the content for today's episode. Big thank you to Bruce for sharing all of this. Bruce contacted me on Facebook. There's a Facebook page for Black Box Online Radio. My personal Facebook is also in the description box. And what Bruce sent me was a copy of Argozy Magazine from 1972, A-R-G-O-S-Y, Argosy might be pronounced Argosy. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. This is a new publication for me. I was born in 1988. 1972 is well before my time. And there is an article in here called Voice Prints May Trap the Zodiac Killer. And that article begins on page 36. However, on page 29 of this magazine, I was really quite surprised that they have an ad for... Winchester and Western Extra Power 22s have all the flat-shooting, power-packed, high-velocity performance you'd expect from any ammunition marked Super X. I just thought that was really, um, I don't know if it's a non-coincidence or it's just really creepy, because in the Zodiac's first letter, he said that he would state some facts that he and only the police knew, and he said that he used Super X 22 ammunition, so, um... I and then he also even said Western that he also that the brand of the ammo was Western. So just seeing these things together is I mean that that may have been purely intentional by somebody who worked at the magazine, but it says Super X, the name that means extra power, now in both Winchester and Western brands. For years hunters who require the most powerful ammunition have relied on Super X to bring down big game or flying waterfowl. The same kind of reliable Super X extra power goes into our high velocity Super X twenty twos too to give you a cartridge that hits with impressive power for a twenty two rim fire, perfect for small game pests or varmint hunting. Again, I don't know how intentional that was by the editors of this magazine. Most likely it was, but let's go to the article, Voice Prints May Trap the Zodiac Killer. Some world-famous homicide investigators believe that the Zodiac's 
year-long silence means that he committed suicide under some identity, either real or fictitious, and not connected with the murder orgies. Murder orgies? You people for real, it was the 70s, I suppose. However, a majority of others among the scientists and homicide sleuths believe that the Zodiac is alive. They believe that he may be leading an unobtrusive life, working at some quiet occupation, perhaps even a menial one, with his strange murderous rage right now boiling up again towards some new interruption. It might come any time. I think he's going to surface, and we'll get him one of these days, says one veteran homicide sleuth in San Francisco. And I was going to read the whole thing, but I just have to jump in right now, because I think it's really interesting to look at an article from 1972 talking about some claims about the Zodiac killer, such as, did the Zodiac commit suicide? Because 1972 is right in the middle of the halt in Zodiac activity from 1971, really all the way to 1974. When they say there's a two-year halt in Zodiac activity, mostly they're talking about 1972 and 1973, and in 1974, the Zodiac Killer would send in the Exorcist letter, which many people believe was a suicide note. Other people think that the Exorcist letter was meant to just put an end to the Zodiac persona, and it says that, I saw and think that the Exorcist was the best satirical comedy ever. I'm paraphrasing, by the way, and then there's a quotation from the Mikado talking about the billowy wave and plunging into the suicide's grave, Titwillow, 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 it's a direct reference to the Mikado. I believe it's the second to the last song that is actually in the Gilbert and Sullivan operetta, but it's been a while since I've watched that one. And then finally it says, P.S. If I don't see this note in your paper, I will do something nasty, which you know I'm capable of. And there's some funky looking symbols that I personally believe are imitation Japanese. I'm not convinced that they have any specific meaning. It's just meant to look like some type of Japanese writing, faux Japanese, to be more precise. But as far as um, the Zodiac is just boiling up towards some new eruption, I don't think that that ever happened. I have never been convinced that the Zodiac operated outside of 1968 and 69. 1968, starting with the Lake Herman Road murders of uh, David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen, culminating with the Stein murder on October 11th of 1969. It's possible, but I am just simply not convinced of that. And then the next point here in this one is that they believe that he may be leading an unobtrusive life, working at some quiet occupation, maybe even a menial one. This is an idea that comes up much more frequently than even I expected. So, so many people, like even Dr. Todd Grande said that he thought the Zodiac was working a simple, solitary job. And there was a guy, um, he runs the Nancy Drew channel, I don't know his real name, but he proposed a suspect named John L. Johnson, who was a custodian at, I want to say, Betty Lou Jensen's high school Again, I'm just going off of memory on that one, but he is definitely a custodian. And he talked about how so many people think that the Zodiac is someone who flew under the radar, that it's going to be someone who wasn't on anybody's radar when they actually find out who committed the murders in 1968 and 69. But the way to find a suspect who's off the radar is to look in different places. And he found a suspect named John L. Johnson. Once again, the name of his channel is Nancy Drew, and he has several videos on the Zodiac Killer, I believe. 
okay, but that's looking at a custodian. Other people have talked about a maintenance man, someone who would have familiarity with mechanical things and parts and pipes, someone who is going to have perhaps an even a large amount of technical knowledge, but isn't going to have the most glorious background. There are people out there who think that that is simply not true. Mike Rodelli would be the loudest voice on that one. He thinks the Zodiac Killer was somebody named Shel Cavale, who was not only an auto-giant, for lack of a better term, he was a millionaire, one of the wealthiest people on the West Coast, and uh, comparatively, so to speak. So, but it is definitely an observation that is very consistent throughout Zodiac research. Let's go back to the article, Voice Prints May Trap the Zodiac Killer. The trail that cannot be erased in, involves an array of clues the Zodiac has left behind, recorded samples of his voice. It is somewhere in those strangely individualized acoustical peculiarities of the human voice as recorded numerous times over in the Zodiac case that might be the final key, and it may lie in a way to unmask the elusive modern-day ripper. The manhunters pursuing the phantom have admitted to the watchdog, that's the uh, name of this um, column, Watchdog for Justice, in Argosy magazine, that the only way to discover that key is to acknowledge to bolster the conventional police methods with one of the newest and most amazing developments in the scientific toolkit, the voice print. The voice print involves the acoustic... Yeah, the acoustics of the human voice and compares it spectrographically with voices of the prime suspects traced down and apprehended, more or less, of old-fashioned police methods. All right, um, about the voice recordings, as I understand it, and some people can weigh in in the comments section, that this article is mostly about spreading some disinfo because people didn't have the internet at the time and they couldn't Google it. If anybody tells you that they have heard the voice recording of the Zodiac Killer, other than Officer Slayton, Nancy Slover, whom I believe both have passed away now, they are not telling the truth, because there was no recording after the Zodiac Killer phone calls on July 5th of 1969, and I do mean July 5th, because as I understand it, Darlene Farron and Mike Majot were shot at the Blue Rock Springs shooting on July 4th of 1969, at what I estimate to be 11.55 p.m., and then at 12.10 a.m. on July 5th of 1969, the Zodiac made the call saying that there are two kids that were shot in a brown car with a 9mm Luger. I'm the one who did it. I also killed those kids last year. Uh, paraphrasing again, goodbye. That is a direct quote, that goodbye. And I didn't do my Zodiac voice for the majority of the call, so uh, you can thank me later. Um, not to go off on a ridiculous tangent, but on the page that's after that 22 Western um, uh, Super X ad, there's an ad for Ruger firearms, and at first I thought, oh my gosh, this is too much, this is really too much, but it's uh, the Zodiac said a 9mm Luger on July 4th, and I was thinking of um, a different true crime case that had involved the Ruger Mini-14 rifle. That was I was actually thinking of the serial killer Robert Christian Hansen. However, people don't have those Zodiac's voice recordings, and there's a very interesting discussion about this in The Myth of the Zodiac Killer by Thomas Henry Horan, because he has a lot of a lot of interpretations of Robert Graysmith. Robert Graysmith went on to write the most famous Zodiac Killer book called Just That Zodiac in 1986, and then he has since put out Zodiac Unmasked and Shooting Zodiac. However, 
1981, Graysmith attempted to publish his Zodiac book, and if the chronology is correct from Thomas Horan's analysis, Graysmith started a book about the Zodiac Killer in 1972. He then changed his legal name from Robert Smith II to Robert Graysmith in 1976. Gray was actually his middle name, Robert Graysmith II, Robert Graysmith Jr. His father was R.G. Smith Sr., and he changed his name in 1976 to Robert Graysmith, pushing it all together. In 1981, Graysmith was supposed to release a book called This is the Zodiac Speaking. They were even doing advertisements for it, and the book was pulled at the last second. And that was with W.W. W. Norton, the publisher. And it was five years later before Graysmith could get his published book out, Zodiac, in 1986 using St. Martin's Press. So, why did Graysmith get his um, book pulled? We aren't completely sure. Now, Thomas Horan hypothesizes that it's because somebody was fact-checking Graysmith's book and discovered that a lot of it was phony baloney. I believe that that is just, um, well, just that a hypothesis. I don't know if that's an established fact. I think what's much more established is that they were doing advertisements for the book and the book was pulled, but the absolute most fascinating part of the hypothesis is the book was called This is the Zodiac Speaking, and there's a little bit of guesswork on the part of Thomas Horde, but he stated that maybe Graysmith was saying that the book is called This is the Zodiac Speaking because he said he had access to the recorded phone calls that were made by the Zodiac Killer, and that simply just doesn't exist. So, this whole thing about how voice prints may trap the Zodiac, I think that we can use the voice comparison to the descriptions provided by Nancy Slover, Brian Hartnell, as well as um, if it is true that somebody heard the Zodiac's voice after the Stein shooting. Brian Hartnell, the surviving victim from Lake Berryessa, had an extended conversation with the Zodiac killer, which may have gone for an, for up to 15 minutes. If you read the Lake Berryessa transcript, uh, we're talking about the events of September 27th of 1969, where the Zodiac Killer wore a hood, a costume, and he's carrying a gun, a knife, and pre-cut lengths of rope. Approached Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard on a picnic blanket at Lake Berryessa, and then said that um, he only wanted their money. He killed some guards, or killed a guard trying to escape Deer Lodge Prison in Montana, and he's trying to get to Mexico. Now, a major commonality with the voice that was heard after the... Blue Rock Springs shooting and the voice that was heard on the um, on September 27th of 1969 at Lake Berryessa is that the voice was described as flat, almost monotone, no traceable accent of any kind. So people who are pushing a suspect, say Bruce Davis, for example, who has a very hard southern accent, yeah, I grew up in East Tennessee, spent some time in Alabama, People don't know too much about Charles Manson, but they they they, they don't they need know that. You know, if you ever listen to Bruce Davis in an interview, he still held on to his southern charm. I got rid of most of mine, as <laughs> not all of it though. West by God, Virginia. I'll tell you what. Now let's go back to this article here. Voice prints may trap the Zodiac killer. After the war, the budding new technique of speaker identification came to be known as voice print, although its further development already slowed in the 1950s. Lawrence Cresta, Kersta, excuse me, K-E-R-S-T-A, a science researcher for Bell Telephone Laboratories, 
in New Jersey. So infinite possibilities in the new technique, he is widely acknowledged as the principal founding father of this new tool for the Crime Fighters Kit. Following his retirement from Bell, Kirst formed his own company, Voice Print Laboratories in New Jersey. Situations in which voice printing has played a role in the past year include the defining of certain questions, airing in somewhat spectacular Howard Hughes' autobiography and his controversy last winter. That Howard Hughes' autobiography comes up in a lot of discussions. I've heard that in some other even just on fictional TV shows, gotta read that at some point. Several cases in a growing indoor sport where sick minds use the obscene phone call to fill innocent girls and women with terror. Voice print has caught a lot of them lately. I absolutely believe in the power of this technology, yes, that they could match somebody's voice. Like the same way you could match someone's fingerprints or somebody's DNA. Now, would it mean that, um... Would, would would this be perfect? I'm not exactly sure the exact accuracy, but if you have someone's voice, then you can, um, there must be ways to compare this using sound waves and so on. Quite naturally, in some areas of the legal profession, diehard opponents of the new developments in scientific identification have fought for the admissibility of voice print findings in court, as they should have, but how would you go about obtaining the Zodiac Killer's, um, voice print and it's really interesting this article doesn't even talk about how they how they obtain the zodiac um the zodiac killer's voice watchdog is gratified to report that the voice print testimony has been declared admissible evidence thus far in several states and including the district of columbia for many years the courts have allowed witnesses to testify in open court that the voice of a suspect they overheard by chance and that the defendant on trial was identical based wholly on merely listening it should definitely count for something. I mean, for the record, though, Nancy Slover did listen to Richard Gajkowski's voice 40 years after she heard it on July 5th of 1969, after she heard the Zodiac, and she said Gajkowski's voice was identical to the voice that she heard. I don't believe that she was able to do that 40 years later. I just don't think that someone can remember how somebody's voice sounds if you've heard them once. Maybe if it's a relative or somebody that you spent a year with who had a really unusual voice that you would um, remember, or if someone had some type of mandible defect and it caused their voice to um, have a very unique uh, type of sound, maybe, but I just simply don't think that she could have done that. Now, the reason for sending me this article was multifaceted. Bruce also uh, had something in here. And you can correct me if he, if I get this wrong, but there was just a telegram that says Western Telegraph that was pressed in the pages that contained a series of symbols, which I'll show for you guys here. There was also something that says Colgate University Bookstore, and this is a receipt um, for uh, three different items that were purchased, 30 cents in tax, totaled $6.20. But the telegraph... Um, the, I guess it's a telegram from Western Telegraph, contains what appear to be runic symbols, very similar to the symbols that the Zodiac Killer used. However, other than the circular ones, and maybe the square, I think that these symbols definitely remind me of runic ones. And the Zodiac symbols are a little bit harder to place. They're a little bit runic, a little bit, um, what was that word I just had it? mechanical, talking like about how um, they could have come from engineering, and they're also 
um, possibly from Filipino origin. That is even mentioned in some of the older police reports that they believe that not only the symbols could have some type of Filipino meaning, but that the idea of slaves in paradise. The Zodiac wrote in the 408 cipher as well as the 340 cipher that he was collecting slaves because when he dies, he will be reborn in paradise and those whom he have killed will be his slaves. So, I mean, this is a fascinating thing to look at all the same, and I would be curious what other people think about these symbols that are found on this telegram that was included with this Argosy magazine pressed between the pages. All right, now I have something different for you guys here, and I fully confess that this is not Zodiac-related, but because Bruce provided me with the info for today's episode, he asked me if I would talk about his own father's missing person's case, and the reason I decided to do this is no one has ever asked me to discuss a family member so close to them in on this channel. I've been contacted by a few people who have said that their friend is a missing person and would I do a story about that, but definitely not someone who has requested something, some coverage about not only an older case, but a case involving their own father, and because Bruce provided me with the substance material for this episode, I wanted to include that here. And Bruce's father was named William Alfred Higgins, and he disappeared in 1969 nonetheless, and I mean, Bruce was just a regular listener to the show, listening about the Zodiac Killer, and he just sent me a lot of info about his father's disappearance. William Alfred Higgins was last seen on April 1st of 1969, to the best of our knowledge. He was last seen in McKeesport, Pennsylvania. At the time he went missing, he was 35 years old. He was born in 1933. He was a white male, 5'9", 175 pounds. Hair was black with some gray, combed back, eye color brown. Possibly wore steel mill-like clothes, green or blue pants, long sleeve, blue work shirt, black or brown work boots. He was a cigarette smoker, and he smoked the brand L&M cigarettes, and he was a beer drinker who was known to drink Iron City beers. He has a cleft chin, and he was last seen with a vehicle that was a blue pickup truck that is included in the missing persons poster, although it is a similar vehicle, not the actual one. And Bruce continues by saying, Hello, Ned. I appreciate your interest in my dad's case. There's not much I can really add that isn't already out there online. And please see the Facebook page or the web sleuth some info about him as well. So my mom and dad met around 1954. By 1955, my mom was pregnant. My dad was 21 years old, and my mom was 17. They got married in August of 1955. They would end up being together for approximately 15 years and have six children, myself being the youngest, born in late 1966. Myself, my brother Daniel, and my brother Daniel were born in early 1965 at home with my mom. The other four kids were at school. My dad comes home from work. He worked just a few miles away at Christ Park Works, Reliance Steel. As it said from the missing uh, persons poster, he um, was last seen wearing work boots and work clothes, and he drank Iron City beers, so all that ties in. It wasn't unusual for my dad to come home from work for lunch or change his shirt and get a beer, etc. He comes home, and my mom and him were having an argument of some kind, which wasn't unusual for them. By 1969, they were both kind of sick of one another. My mom said that they argued about money and him not coming home, and her needing to give me the 
bottle of milk, etc. My dad says something to the effect of, he's not taking care of all these kids, that you'd be better off on welfare, as well as conveniently saying, don't bother to look for me because you'll never find me. He grabs a cardboard box and a few clothes and a pillow, and possibly around $200 in cash that had been put away in the coffee can. He never gets in his, he gets in his truck, excuse me, he gets in his truck and drives off and is never seen or heard from again. My mom also said that it was a Saturday when he went missing and it was clearly a school day. So I guess that means in reality it was a school day because um, he comes home during the work week and the kids were at school, but his uh, mom claimed that it was on a Saturday. So I believe um, Bruce's interpretation of that is that his mom misremembered. Then again, she is in her mid-80s now. The kids came home from school and were sitting at the kitchen table, and her dad is with our grandfather. By the way, my mom's dad and grandfather, like my dad once told me many years later, your dad was a good guy, he just drank too much. They go to the McKeesport police station to make a report that her husband had abandoned her and their kids. No such report has ever been located. Do you ever have those moments when things just start to get weird? However, there were many basement floods that happened in the neighborhood in the 1980s, and many old records were lost. There are large, powerful rivers nearby. The Mon River, the Yaw, yeah, the Mon, like, um, by the Mon, uh, as some, someone who's from West Virginia on the border of Pennsylvania, do you mean the Monongahalia why her dad would leave a somewhat decent, secure job. His last position was making bayonets for the Vietnam War, and his co-signed long-term long-term contract was with the Department of Defense. Shortly after, my dad supposedly quits and leaves us, so job security was not an issue, at least from 1969 to 60 to 73. We thought he lived in a modest rent-free house that was bought and paid for us by mom's brother and our uncle in 1966. Our dad was in the middle of fixing up this house. Example, he bought, cut, and installed paneling for kitchen cabinets. He left a 14-year marriage, six kids, a close, by good job. I think, a, yeah, close, by job, and a house, etc. Why bother to come back at all if you're going to leave your job, wife and kids, etc.? Why not just leave that morning on the way to work? Why take virtually nothing? He left clothes behind, his tools, his guns... He's never been seen from or heard by his side of the family either. He used to take his mother to church each Sunday in Irwin, Pennsylvania, and sit outside in his truck until the services was done. His mom died in 1979. On her deathbed, she sadly stated, I wish Billy was here. My dad wasn't perfect. He had a temper and could be abusive. He had girlfriends on the side and spent a lot of time in bars. But towards the end, my oldest brother said, My dad was staying home more and not going to the bar. He liked to drink Iron City bottles. His truck was never located. Myself and my uncle and my dad's youngest brother both submitted our DNA via NamUs. I also uploaded mine to Jed Match. So far, there have been no hits. I did that mostly in hopes that there'd be a chance that he may have fathered another child. After myself, for example, only three out of his six children are still living. So as you can see from the statement that Bruce has written out for this show and Bruce I am very sorry to hear about all of this um absolutely but from the statement his father left and it appears like he was going to start a new life somewhere but he didn't only move out he vanished off the face of the earth 
And it is quite perplexing that he wouldn't stay in contact with his own side of the family. I can comprehend that somebody wants to get out of the marriage, or they want to get out of the stressful life that they're living, even if that means cutting ties with the kids. But absolutely everyone, I mean, some people do this. There are genuine walkaways, but that begs the question, well, what actually happened to him? I mean, if he is undergoing these stressful encounters, did that not lead to some type of conflict, so to speak? So, Bruce has some additional comments for us about his dad. My dad never picked up his final paycheck from work. It could mean nothing. Maybe he wanted mom to have it for us. He didn't want to stick around a few more days, etc. I know if I was about to go on the sheep, I'm not sure what that means, I'd want as much money as possible as on my person as possible. A short time later, my mom runs into a police officer who happened to know my dad somewhat. My dad would do odd jobs on the side, handiwork, painting, grass cutting, vehicle repairs. He was an excellent mechanic. He again tells my mom conveniently that Bill told him that he's going to Florida with a girlfriend and that he's going to live on a boat. As long as he lives on this boat in international waters, he can't be forced to pay child support. I mean, is that what happened to William Higgins and... Uh, I'm sure that he would come on dock at some point, but I don't I don't know how successful those plans are about people who try to live in international waters. There are a lot of people who uh, do contemplate plans and ideas like that, but uh, all to get out of paying child support? I mean, in the 1960s, in early 1970s, you'd have to expect that somebody would just leave and uproot and move somewhere else, and they would just, if he's this good of a mechanic, he's going to become a mechanic in small town, another state, and then just stay there. Do, do, do you really have to um, move into international waters? It, I think the point I'm trying to make is that it's a very large story, and you would have to find out, is this really what happened? But Bruce says, the story is plausible, but personally, I think it's nonsense. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a little bit nonsensical. Yeah, someone's going to talk about that. Oh, we're going to talk about that. Yeah, I'm going to live on a boat, and I'm going to live in international waters, and no one's going to bother me. But do people actually go through with that for the for their, for their remainder of their life? William Higgins, as we said, was 35 years old at the time. By the way, I spoke with this retired officer in the late 1990s, who was now elderly, and he did recall my dad but not the part about running off to Florida with another woman, woman to live on a boat. He's now deceased, so my mom was having a fling with this much younger guy across the street named Mike. He was like 19 or 20 years old, 10 years younger than my mom, and 13 years younger than my dad, approximately. My dad was definitely aware of the affair. Mike would come out of his mother's and get in the car and leave five minutes later than my mom would say, I need something, and I'm going to run to the store real quick. She had her own car by then, and my dad used to stand in the kitchen window and watch them leaving. My oldest brother and others knew what was going on as well. He remembers looking up my dad and thinking, why isn't he mad, or why isn't he going to bust them? He said my dad just kind of laughed because he didn't care, because he knew he was leaving her and leaving us soon. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either, but... um. I don't think that the siblings' hypothesis is too ridiculous in that respect. I mean, when you hear 
someone who is just being so nonchalant about someone else's affair, that's almost just like, whatever, I'm out of here. That would be my reaction. My dad left in April of 1969, and this guy Mike moved into our house in May of 1969. I'm so sorry, Bruce, that that happened. That just... That... That 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 would be like just an absolutely life altering experience. That's how you end up on the Steve Wilkos show in the in the new millennium. Pretty ballsy, yeah. It's pretty pretty ballsy. There is a pic of my dad sitting at the kitchen table in our kitchen at our home, and that is the last known picture of the, taken of him in March or early April of 1969. I have a pic of Mike holding me in our home, dated May of 1969, with his suitcase of clothes on our table. And he obviously knew or felt that my dad wasn't coming back anytime soon. This guy had a lengthy juvenile record and was known to the local police for stealing or stripping parts from vehicles. He also was a prolific firebug. I saw his arson records briefly on my lunch break when I was working in downtown Pittsburgh. I would often go to Allegheny county courthouse and look stuff up. I regret not copying or taking notes. It was my lunch break, so I probably felt... I didn't have a lot of time. Allegheny County was also the county for McKeesport back then, and still is. So Mike was known for stealing car parts and then dumping them in the lower 10th Ward landing dock, just a stone's throw away from our house. Our address back then and his was still considered in the lower 10th Ward in McKeesport, but then there wasn't much lighting or fencing there. It's pretty open and outdoor, and security cameras didn't quite exist yet. So my uncle comes to visit us from Chicago, and he gets the word that Bill has left. By the way, he paid our $6,600 on the house in 1966. That's about $49,000 today. He tells my mom that Mike can't be living in this. Long story short, we move to Portview, which is above the 10th Ward. And Mike goes back and burns our house to the ground out of spite. Yeah, as I said, um, Bruce, these um, experiences, I am... Uh, this must have been absolutely overwhelming. He confesses and gets a choice of jail or military service. He joins the Marines, makes it through boot camp, but quickly goes AWOL on his leave. My mom drives down to North Carolina with some of the kids and us and brings him back to Pennsylvania. He sounds like a peach. He hides out from the MPs, and eventually someone feels that he's not worth pursuing or prosecuting. And people do get away with this. This is how they become long-standing, absconding fugitives. They just become, they just start living their lives, and the case goes so cold that people just stop looking for them. And we saw this very clearly with Frank Dryman Valentine, the Zodiac Killer suspect, who was first uh, leaving Deer Lodge Prison in 1969 in Montana, sent to California, and then he violated the terms of his parole, went to Arizona, and stayed there for nearly 40 years, if I recall correctly, but he was ultimately arrested and sent back to Deer Lodge Prison in Montana, the longest absconding fugitive in Montana state history, and it's because the uh, grandson of the person that Frank Dryman Valentine murdered, Clem Pellet, began to look more into the case, and they figured out what was going on, and they tracked down Frank Valentine, who was using a completely different name in Arizona, but someone started to care again. Someone started to investigate again, and it sounds like this guy, Mike, was... um kind of to the contrary, just no one cared anymore, or they just didn't want to look for him. 
So, unfortunately, I never had the chance to confront him about the way he treated me. I think he got off easily, in my humble opinion. Yeah, it sounds like it. I feel my mom and him met and plotted to get my dad out of the picture. Yes, my dad was would probably leave eventually, but I was told about Mike's sister that he was crazy about your mom back then, and that we tried to talk him out of it because we thought he was ruining his life with a woman ten years his senior with six kids. She also said that she heard my mother killed Bill and put him down a well. I spent two summers digging around her old property, but never located a well. Later, she said that was a running joke whenever Bill's name came up. What the hell? I feel my dad came home that night before, and he was abused by Mike. I, f I believe Mike killed him, and that my mom helped, obviously, in plotting it. I believe his remains and his 1955 Chevy pickup truck, which my dad loved, are in the river again. The lower 10th Ward boat landing dock. I will attach a photo of that. Mike died in 1990, shortly before my dad had left. My oldest sister, Barb, one, I guess those are two different um, ideas. Mike died in 1990, shortly before my dad left. My oldest sister, Barb, once heard my mom talking to someone in the basement. It was a man's voice, and she said, and definitely not our dad's. She said, my mom, say the effect, watch out, he comes in this way when our dad would come home, and he'd walk along the side of the house and go in the back. Our parents' bedroom was in the basement. I think my dad came home slightly drunk and was attacked. It was dark and he would have been upstairs. The basement room was off, so to hear our mom stalking two strange men's voices downstairs, my sister would be remembering running the window because she thought mom's going to get herself in trouble. Some inside Mike Quinn's brother, Mike is, Mike's last name is Quinn, by the way. So Bruce's theory in all of this he can correct me if I misstate something, is that his own mother was responsible for his father's disappearance, or she was an active participant with it, that multiple people were involved with a type of plotting and planning to get Bill, William Higgins, out of the picture so that Mike could move in and be with his mother. Now, my response to reading all of that is, I don't believe that William Higgins, even though I don't, I didn't know him personally, I only learned about him from Bruce, actually did this plan about living in international waters. It sounds too big of a story to be true. It sounds implausible. I know Bruce said it was plausible, but like people will talk about those things, but not actually go through with a plan like that, and let alone if you're in international waters, you're going to be coming on land at some point, and I mean, if you actually were that important of a fugitive, people would be monitoring you. And I'm also noticing major inconsistencies in the story. As you heard, Bruce fully points out that his mother says that the the uh, final day, the final time his father was seen in the house was a Saturday, but everyone else remembers it to be a school day and a work day, and that he came home in the middle of the day, which was very normal for lunch, and then went back to... Um, to his job, but on this particular day, he just grabbed some small things and left. I did think that it was rather odd that he wouldn't bring his guns. I mean, if he's moving out and not coming back and he's going to be on the road for a while, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I think that a man would definitely want to bring at least one of the guns with him. And I'm just reading Bruce's uh, story that he has written out here. That also, to me, suggests that there could be some type of either foul play or something malicious going on. And maybe I'm reading too much into that particular detail, but 
on, on, on the other hand, to give some counterbalance, sometimes people do leave. There are walkaways. People go away to start a new life, and they don't come back. They just view it as an escape. They want to get out. Yeah, he's doing work on this um, other person's house, and he's installing this, and he's doing the paneling. And they're just like, I've had it with this life. I'm getting away from it all. Now, I do think that it's very very bizarre that there wouldn't be an ounce of contact with any family member. I mean, if what, when I was first reading the introductory paragraphs in Bruce's story, it sounded like it was just that he was leaving his wife and kids. Well, why does that, why does that mean he has to disassociate from absolutely every person he has ever met before? As far as leaving the paycheck behind, I don't think that's abnormal. When people want to get away, they, they get away. An interesting example of this is Patricia Krenwinkel, the Manson follower who was involved with the Tate-LaBianca murders, joined Manson that way after she hooked up with Charles Manson and went out to her his um, little cult-wacky woo-woo thing that they did. She left her paycheck behind in her car and didn't even bring it with her. If people want to get away, they'll just leave something behind, and then they'll go on to this new opportunity that they see. I don't think that there is sufficient evidence to say that a particular piece of foul, a particular action of foul play occurred, and only because all I have is Bruce's story here, which I do appreciate immensely. I believe him when he says that there's this affair going on with his mother and a guy named Mike who's much younger, and that Mike moves in a month after his father disappears, and that just has to be absolutely, absolutely infuriating for a kid, whether you're a child, a teenager, even if you're an, an adult in like the age of 20 or 21, I think that would still be very, very shocking to somebody, especially if someone disappears under suspicious circumstances, because at that point, only like, what, 30 days later, his father would still be classified as a missing person. I mean, he's still a missing person to this day, but it's an ongoing investigation. It's an ongoing discovery. Well, what happened to this guy? So I think that a lot of the stories that have been shared about William Higgins' explanations for disappearing are probably inaccurate, that there probably are a lot of uh, people trying to hide certain pieces of info I also don't believe the story about Bill was murdered and thrown in the well, Bill in the well, and so on. Um, I just think that that was made up as my pure gut instinct. I just learned about this from Bruce and the story that he tells. I don't think that anyone was murdered and thrown down a well. As in, and he openly says that that was just a dark-humored running joke on the other side of the family. So I think I would agree with that. But do you have any first-hand impressions? of the William Higgins story, and please share anything you would like to say about the William Higgins case or the Zodiac Killer mystery or some of the people that we've been talking about in this one. Anything about this um, Argosy article talking about the Zodiac Killer's voice print. If you have any comments at all, they're welcome in the section down below. Anybody can write the show at Black Box Online Radio or on Facebook as Bruce did. BlackBoxOnlineRadio at AOL.com is the email address. BlackBoxNed88 on Instagram. All of that stuff is available in the description box, and you can go over to the Zodiac Killer channel's interviews with the experts series. If you haven't heard those yet, there are many great things on the Zodiac Killer channel.
Thank you so much for listening to this week's Zodiac Mondays. I will see you over on Instagram for the bonus podcast. Until next time.